today will pull them even with Denver in a first place tie atop the WCHA. Near pickoff there for Malone. Walski looks, gives it up to Kozak, and now Malone takes it. Brad Malone, the sophomore. Long shot, rebound, Kozak scores! The sportscasters are on the air for episode 14. It is April 5th, 2001. We are in Buffalo, New York, anxiously awaiting the start of the NHL playoffs. My name is Steve Bennett. I am here with my co-host, Don Russ, now fully healed from (laughs) the scurvy of a few weeks past. And uh, we have a lot of interesting content for you this week. Obviously, the main show you're listening to right now, episode 14, we are going to be joined by Richard Deitch, the media writer and women's college basketball covering sportsillustrated.com writer. And also we will have from the New Orleans Time-Picayune uh, as part of our book club closeout here today, uh, Jeff Duncan, who was published in the 2006 edition of the Best American Sports Writing. So Jeff Duncan's going to join us to talk about that piece Richard Deitz is going to join us to talk about all things sports media. We are going to preview the Frozen Four this weekend. We have pick four, and right now we have three things. Let's play a game. All right. Mm-hmm. Count of three. One. All righty. I'll take it off. Two. The oil patterns on a PBA lane are very, very difficult. I might be able to beat Jamarcus Russell at quarterback. <laughs> this is the funnest night ever. <laughs> Did we just become best friends? Yep. Now let's move on to other business. Uh, Butler, UConn. Thanks for nothing. <laughs> I mean, what was that? I know I know people are overly reactionary one day after the fact sometimes, but people are calling that the worst championship game ever. And it's hard to argue with uh, 18.8% shooting, 57% free throw shooting. You know, what was the final? I don't have it in front of me. 50. Ugly. Yeah. Ugly to ugly. Yeah, lower to lower. <laughs> Even uh, our uh, the sportscasters uh, deemed best player in the country, 16 points. Kemba. Yeah. Yeah, you know, my, my first thing is the same, and it's just, you know, my thing is sometimes showing up is enough. And uh, basically for UConn last night, they, <laughs> yeah. they showed up, and that was good enough to win the national championship. And, you know, this all kind of comes back to right before we got started with the tournament, Dave Damashak was on this podcast, yep. and he kind of warned us. He said, be very careful about March Madness because despite the fact that everyone whines and complains about the BCS the NCAA tournament is an absolute crapshoot. You take a look at a guy like Dean Smith, one of the greatest coaches in college basketball history. All the years he coached at North Carolina, every year he went to the tournament, he only won three championships. Coach K, all the years that he's been at Duke, every year they're in the Sweet 16, the Elite Eight, he's only won three championships. This thing is hard to win, really, really hard to win. And I got to wonder if a team like Butler is going to really, really regret. I mean, there's no shame to losing to Duke. 
and they were they it was really close. But they're gonna look back and say we had a chance as a mid major, a little school in Indianapolis, Indiana. We had a chance to win the national championship, and we shot eighteen point eight percent from the field. Right. Yep. Uh, not uh, pretty. Horrible. My my second thing. One more thing. Okay. Before we go on, that game started at nine thirty last night. Yeah, that's what ridiculous. the hell were they waiting for? Who knows? And then the game ends. I don't know. It doesn't take long they get, to play they get the a college same PR basketball people game. Baseball do apparently. Yeah, but the game ends, and it's four or five commercials. They keep dragging out to watch that one shining moment video, and finally <laughs> it plays. And I'm like, "What was I waiting for? This brutal." Yeah, uh, I, I saw someone. I can't remember who, but wrote that it set college basketball back 50 years or something. Like oh, that. just horrible, ugly. Um, my second thing, the Detroit Lions, I don't know if you heard about this, but about they apparently accidentally emailed something that was supposed to go to the league, to every team in the league. Whoops. And th- depending on who you read, if I've, there's two different sources. This was first reported by ProFootballTalk.com. They kind of made it sound like Detroit disclosed uh, trade secrets. If you've listened to Tom Kowalski from the Detroit or Everything Michigan, MLive.com, um, he says, yes, they did accidentally send something out, but it, it had no information. about it. What it was was uh, information on all the teams that – or information on the players that they had visits from, mm. which I guess, depending on who you talk to, it's not that private because, as they said, the agents like to – disclose this information anyway it's kind of like a bargaining chip well oh this team called me this team called me but it's the second time that they've done this accidentally they did this before with a matthew stafford injury where they were supposed to send to the league that he was going to be on ir but they sent it to every team in the league accidentally again not that it would have changed anything but it 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 just it doesn't look good from a public relations standpoint you're the lions to begin with one of the four teams who have never Played in a Super Bowl. Right. Only four left. And with your terrible draft history Jacksonville, and stuff. Cleveland, and Houston, the others. With your, with your awful draft history. I was going to say, what did, this, season, what did this email say? What awful wide receiver they were going to pick in the first <laughs> round? I think it disclosed the visits they already had. Like, you're not required to send these out, apparently, before the, teams come for, before the players come for visits, but you have to send it afterward. So it sent out a memo of all the teams they had already had in for visits. But, yeah, not... Not great. Dopes. All right, my second thing. It's early. It's really early. But if Jabba Chamberlain, Rafael Soriano, and Mariano Rivera are going to be as dominant out of the bullpen as they have been, the Yankees are going to be very, very hard to beat. In the first seven and one-third innings, those three players are 1-0 and with six strikeouts, no walks, three saves, and a 1.00 ERA. That's pretty good. The Yankees are in a position where even though their starting pitching is not that good, if they can take a lead through the sixth inning and these three guys are going to pitch like they have pitched, they are going to be one of the best teams in the league. And the Red Sox have sputtered out of the gate, and we're going to talk a lot about the Red Sox in our Red Sox-only podcast uh, in it that is available also on our website, sports-casters.com. But... Look out if these guys, and again, it's very, very early, but if these guys are going to pitch like that, look out. My last thing here, uh, ESPN, uh, 
everybody loves lists. Everyone loves mm-hmm. power rankings, all that type of nonsense. Uh, yesterday, April 4th, ESPN released their first baseball power ranking, which to me comes off as a little bit silly. Three they, games in? Three games into the <laughs> season with 157 games to go. They've already determined how to rank all 32 teams. 32 teams. 30 teams. 30 teams. Yeah. Uh, the Yankees at the top. The Phillies 3-0 and in second. The Rangers 3-0 and in third. Keep going down the list to Boston at 0-3 in seventh. Now, I know they're a good team, <laughs> but they're 0-3. What are you going to Where do your... they put the Orioles, who I believe are 4-0? The Orioles are – I think they're up there, too. They are – no, they're in ninth. In ninth. Okay. Yeah, so they they don't get the benefit of because uh, if they would have done this before the season started, the Orioles would have been probably in the twenties, maybe. But then you take a team like I can't remember who it was, Jeff Passan maybe that was talking up the Kansas City Royals, yes, the Royals, yeah. who have started three and one. Uh, I'm not sure what they did today, but they are ranked twenty sixth. Hmm. And the Pirates, who's ranked last? The Indians are last at uh, one and two. Uh. Pirates are two and one. And they're right. they're twenty. They can't climb above twenty eight. My point though is is if you're going to rank a team that like the Orioles, who are three and one, uh, who some people like Jeff Passan believe are going to be better than they have been at twenty six, then why even bother with this rankings until you're twenty games into the season or whatever? It just seems a little bit lazy. And I know there is some uh, hypocrisy in me talking about how list making is lazy and then reviewing a list. But <laughs> what can you do? Yeah. All right, my third thing. The NFL took some heat over the fact that the 7-9 and nine Seahawks made the playoffs last season. Well, in the NBA's Eastern Conference, it appears that the Indiana Pacers will be the league's number eight seed. They are eight games below 500. Ooh. They are 35-43. and 43. Entering the last 10 days of the season, Charlotte, who has 32 wins, and Milwaukee, who has 31, are still potentially eligible for the playoffs. Eight games below 500, and you're going to make the playoffs? Who, who is excited to watch a 65-win Chicago Bulls team play a best-of-seven, 56-win, yeah. play a 35-43 and 43 Indiana Pacers team? That is a hideous job by the NBA. You know, you're going to have eight, eight teams in. What can you do about it? I think the Western Conference, the eighth-place team, has about 44 wins. Yeah. Uh, but if you're going to kill the NFL for the Seahawks getting in, you've got to kill the NBA. 32 or 35 and 43 is an ugly, ugly record for a playoff team. Not only that, but the Knicks can still make it in with a losing record. They're sitting at third, in seventh place, 38-38. Actually, they, they've clinched that spot. Yes. So, I mean, they, if they want to mail it in for the last however many games – they can and right. make it in with the losing the record. The only spot left for grabs is the A spot in the East, and there's three teams still alive. It, Indiana is in the is uh, in eighth with 35 wins. Then there's Charlotte with 32, and Milwaukee with 31. We gave Zach a lot of gr- AccuScore Zach a lot of grief about his supercomputers, but they were pretty close about New York. They got Anthony in that trade, and it hasn't translated into wins really. And they were right about. Uh, the Denver team, who kind of maintained their position. Yeah, they might have even moved up since then. Yeah, They're 47-29 and 29 with fifth locked up, it looks like. Yeah, and uh, I was going to ask, I'm not a big basketball follower. I know you're not the biggest either. 
But for as long as I can remember, why is the East always so weak? Or so top-heavy, I should say. Yeah, it just seems like the East is not as deep as the West. And I think part of the problem is, is that ter- going from bad to good or from good to bad is maybe hardest in basketball. And I think Joe Poznanski, who wrote a little column about the randomness of the NCAA tournament, made a point that since... I don't know when. There's only been about 14 teams who've won an NBA championship. Really? Yeah, maybe even less. And they have a ton of teams who haven't won it, and it's really hard to win. Uh, in bad. It's really hard to go from bad to good and good to bad. Yeah, it almost seems a little bit counterintuitive because there's only five guys on the floor at a time, so you would think like one good player make, would make all the difference. But I guess with those five good players, all five of them have to be good. Whereas in football, maybe you just need to draft the right quarterback, and then your whole team is better. But, yeah, it's uh, two possible losing records teams going to make the playoffs in the East. Ugly. All right, the Sportscasters, episode 14. You can find it at our website, www.sports-casters.com. You can find us on Facebook. It's facebook.com slash thesportscasters. You can email us at thesportscasters at gmail.com. And I know I am writing blogs. Uh, <laughs> I don't know about other people, but our blogs can be found at thesportscasters.blogspot.com. And, of course, we talk about it constantly. We love it. We are on Twitter. You can find us at www.twitter.com slash sports underscore casters. We will be right back with Richard Deitch. Our next guest is a graduate of the University at Buffalo. He got his master's degree at Columbia Columbia University in the city of New York, where he dormed with Meadow Soprano. He spent one year as a Knights Wallace Fellow at Michigan. He is the author of a number of children's books and has contributed to numerous newspapers and magazines such as Vibe and the San Diego Union Tribune. Currently, he writes for Sports Illustrated, sportsillustrated.com, covering all things media, the Olympics, tennis, and women's basketball. He is coming to us live today from Indianapolis, Indiana, where he is covering the Women's Final Four. A warm sportscaster's welcome to Richard Deitch. How are you doing today, Richard? I'm good. Where, where on earth are you reading this intro from? That is <laughs> fascinating, by the way. Yeah, it's Meadow like, Soprano, by the way, would be a lot, she'd be a lot younger than me. There's no possible <laughs> way I could have roomed with her at Columbia. She was not your roommate at Columbia? As far as I know, she was not my roommate at Columbia at all. <laughs> yeah, it's funny. Would have been a good room. Would have been a good roommate, but in fact, she was not. <laughs> That's too bad. All right. Well, uh, let's start where you are in Indianapolis and and do a couple questions on the women's final four because it's it's somewhat fascinating this year in the sense that UConn will not be threepeating, and the Big Twelve team I think that everyone expected to get to this point, Baylor, is not there, and instead it's Texas A and M versus Notre Dame. Uh, Notre Dame with a busy weekend being in the Final Four in women's basketball and the Frozen Four in college hockey. So how, how have you? what have you seen in Indianapolis, and what do you think of the championship game tonight? I'm sure it will outscore the game last night. Yeah, I think it, uh, that for one thing, I would think the quality of play tonight will be better than the men's game, which I watched uh, yesterday with a couple other reporters from uh, historic Hinkle Fieldhouse on the campus of Butler, uh, which is a very, very cool place to watch a game, though, as you can imagine, um, some really sad people 
uh, last night on that campus. Um, it's been an interesting women's tournament. Um, I think most casual fans uh, would have expected, and correctly so, that UConn was going to play Stanford in the finals. Um, once Baylor obviously was knocked off by Texas A&M, UConn obviously had Maya Moore, arguably the greatest college player in the history of the game. Um, but the two teams that are playing tonight, uh, Texas A&M and Notre Dame, have been the two best teams in the tournament and absolutely deserve to be here. Um, both teams play very physical, hard-nosed defense. Texas A&M is a press team, so they have some really exciting quick guards who pressure the ball 90 Notre Dame has a terrific uh, sophomore point guard in Skylar Diggins, who is not only a good shooter, but just a really smart player who knows how to control pace and uh, the flow of the game. Um, so it should be interesting. I will say this: Skylar Diggins, in the last couple, in the last couple days, and certainly this week, has really gotten um, far bigger in terms of the popular culture. Uh, both uh, Lil Wayne and Chris Brown gave her a uh, shout out on Twitter. And uh, her Twitter followers went from something to the effect of like 6,000 to 40,000 in the course of a 48-hour uh, period. So um, I've seen her as a trending topic on Twitter. She's a really, really good player, a really good spokesperson for the game. So if Notre Dame ends up winning tonight, we could see sort of a little bit of a shift in the era from the Maya Moore era to the Skylar Diggins era. So if... Uh, for your listeners, if there's somebody maybe to pay attention to over the next two years, it's going to be the point guard from Notre Dame who is, uh, who is a really good player. That said, I like Texas A&M tonight in a very tight game. Terrific guards on Texas A&M. Really, really well coached. Uh, good scoring, Daniel Adams. But it, but it should be a good game. The one thing I can promise is I think the game will be more exciting than last night's men's game. <laughs> it's interesting to talk about Notre Dame for a second because – it's a university that's kind of been built around football. Football has not been successful for quite a long time. Yet, you look at just this season alone, the women's team is in the final game of the women's Final Four in basketball. The hockey team is in the Frozen Four. The men's basketball team was, in the, was a high seed in the tournament and threatened a number one seed all year. What's going on at Notre Dame that all of, the, all of these seemingly secondary sports are having great success while the football team just sputters along and goes from coach to coach to coach? Well, I think what it proves is that it's, um, you know, Notre Dame has always been a very good athletic program in other sports. Some of those sports have been overshadowed by football. Uh, women's basketball is a perfect example. I mean, they've, they've made the NCAA tournament, uh, you know, it seems like, like 20 of the last 21 years, won a national championship in 2001. They're always good in hockey. They're always good in, like you said, some of these other uh, minor sports, I think gymnastics, or if I'm wrong, there apologies. Um, but it, what it proves is that it's very hard to maintain football excellence for 40, 50 years. And, you know, Notre Dame does not play in a conference. Yes, they play on television. Um, their standards academically are higher than a lot of the football powers. Um, so what I think it is is that the, the, those that have this idea – or this notion that Notre Dame should and is and will always be a football power is just ridiculous. I mean, they're, they should be good, but they're never, I think, the days of them being dominant, the way we see a Florida dominant or an Auburn dominant or an Alabama dominant, are over. They just do not have um, the things that would lend themselves to being dominant year in, year out. Yeah, like I said, they're not in a conference. 
Um, their academic standards are very severe, even when they sort of uh, let some, uh, you know, some, some, even when they sort of reduce the standards a little bit to let people in, usually those athletes are still far better students uh, or, start, or far better academically than in other places. So you have that, you have the conference, um, and now you've had this coaching uh, revolving door, as yep. you mentioned. Um, so the continuity isn't there. And again, I think, you know, that's understandable. When people can't win there, they change uh, their coaches. But uh, I just think the Notre Dame administration is, is thinking in a, in a, about this in a, in a situation that just doesn't exist anymore. The, the 70s and the 80s and the 90s, uh, I, I, th- those days are over. I think Notre Dame can eventually, you know, have a year or two where it's top ten, maybe top five. But I, I just don't think they're set up right now uh, unless they head into a conference like the Big Ten to have consistent top five, top ten teams. I, I would, um, uh, again, I would be hard-pressed to think that Notre Dame is going to be anything better than a, you know, a nine-win team next year. Before we get too far away from the tournament, I want to ask a couple questions about the coverage. Uh, we went into the, this uh, NCAA tournament with kind of the remote in our hands as opposed to being in CBS's hands. But the games were on some strange stations. How do you think everything played out? Is CBS happy with the way they changed the coverage this year? And how do you think the fan feels about being uh, the one who's in charge of switching from game to game and, as opposed to being at the mercy of CBS? Well, I think um, I would say CBS Turner is ecstatic. Uh, their, uh, the tournament was the most watched tournament since uh, 2005. Um, averaged, uh, I think it averaged uh, 10 million total viewers or something like that. I, uh, um, I saw like a press release that literally came out not too long ago. So I think CBS Turner are incredibly excited. I think the numbers, uh, uh, they could not be more pleased with. Production was good. Things seemed to go pretty smoothly. Um, you know, the question about the viewers is a good one, and I think you'd have to ask individuals. I personally like being empowered, and I like the idea that I can see every game uh, at my choosing and my doing, and if I have cable, I could pretty much watch every single game of this tournament. That being said, I know there are some people who don't have true TV. I know there are some people who are not used to watching the tournament on cable, and for them, I, I understand it was a little bit of a change. I, I think in general... It's a positive. I, I, again, I'm someone who believes that the uh, to give if you give the you should be giving the viewer as much opportunity and choices as possible. And as long as you, as a uh, person, as long as you have true TV at your home, uh, I think basically you got to suck it up. You find where it is on the TV, and, and then it's right there for you. I would rather be in charge of my viewing than CBS or Turner. So in that sense, I, I like the tournament this year. I, I thought it was much improved. You can question whether some of the announcing choices were good or bad. But in terms of the presentation and the opportunity as a viewer, uh, I really liked it. I thought, I thought it was a win. What did you think about the decision to switch to the three-man booth in the Final Four this year? I'm not a fan of three-man booths in basketball. Uh, I like Steve Kerr a lot. And so, I, you know, I, I thought the broadcast was fine. Um, I thought Paul Key and Kellogg made relevant points. I thought they, smooth, they, were, uh, they were smooth between them. In general, though, I don't like it. I think it's too many people talking. Um, if there's, you know, I thought the broadcast was good. The game was called. You know, my biggest complaint <laughs> with the broadcast is uh, Jim Nance's hokey, ridiculous, cliche line. Yeah, uh, what was with at the that? End to try to, Three. You know, whatever. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I, that's an example of a guy who I think wrote out his final sentence before the uh, before the game 
uh, started. So outside of that kind of hope cliche, um, I, I think the finals were fine. But my preference would be, you know, two-man booth, whether it was Nansen Kerr or Nansen Kellogg. Uh, I think that's a better listen for the audience personally. I thought Charles Barkley struggled a little bit in the selection show, but I thought he got better and better and more comfortable when his job changed to just reacting to what he's seen during the games. What did you think of Charles Barkley's involvement, and how do you think he progressed as the tournament went on? I think that's a really good point. That's a very astute uh, observation by you, by you. I feel the exact same way. Um, Barkley will not be on the selection show next year. I talked to David Levy, that's the head of Turner Sports, uh, after the second day, and he told me that, uh, it, while it's not definite, he, would be, he thought he would be very surprised if they had that same setup because of exactly what you said. That's one, the, the timing of the selection show is only an hour. There's a lot that you have to get to. And two, that's absolutely not Charles' strength. The guy is never going to be able to tell you, um, you know, who the fourth point guard is, um, uh, you know, who the, who the fourth guard is on uh, Butler or who, uh, you know, who's the best player in UNC Asheville before the tournament. But, you know, listen, he's, a very, he's very funny and engaging when he sees something on TV uh, or a game on television that can riff off it, and that's where you use him. So I think he was really fun during the tournament. I think he said some ridiculous things, which is what he always does. I mean, and probably some things that are just not based in, uh, in basketball, uh, I don't know if the word is logic, but sort of basketball research when it comes to the college game. But he did what he, did. he does. He created, he created conversation, a little bit of controversy, um, and I think they were very happy with him. But I agree with you. You need to keep him away from preview stuff as much as possible and let him do review stuff when he can see things on TV and react to it. Yeah. The sportscasters are here with Richard Deitch from Sports Illustrated, sportsillustrated.com. You can follow him on Twitter just at his name, at Richard Deitch. Uh, I want to switch gears a little bit. We only have a few more minutes left, but I want to talk a little bit about the baseball season um, in terms of the sports media and the first thing that jumps out is a new Sunday night baseball crew on ESPN. Uh, again, a decision to go to a three-man booth, and uh, Joe Morgan and uh, Jim Miller are gone. Uh, what do you think of the uh, new Sunday night baseball booth, and uh, how do you think they'll do with a three-man crew? Well, to start with, any time that Joe Morgan is not in front of my face is a great day. So they could have basically, wa- ESPN could have walked outside in Bristol found the first person going down the road, put that person on the air, and I would have been happy if it wasn't Joe Morgan. So in that sense, I'm ecstatic that Joe Morgan is gone. I like John Miller, incredibly talented broadcaster, but Joe Morgan was a grump. He brought very little to a broadcast, and I'm glad he's gone. That said, Dan Schulman is, um, I think, the best working play-by-play person in the country in any sport. So I think it's great to have him. Um, on that game. Um, I'm, I'm a huge admirer of his, and I think he will do a solid job. Um, the analyst I'm not sold on yet. Bobby Valentine talks a lot. Yeah, I mean, he does. And I out. And Oral Hershaw is pretty thoughtful, but, um, you know, I think for now, taking a backseat to Bobby. So there's a lot of chatter in that booth because of Valentine. Um, I think Valentine will get better. He's used to being in the studio, and I think that's why he's used to talking. So that team still has to find its way. Um, I think they'll eventually be good. Do I think they'll be great? No. I think they'll be good. And to me right now, good is better than what Morgan and Miller was last year because of Morgan. So I'm okay with that three-man booth for the moment. But again, I do think given that Valentine is a guy who likes to talk a lot, that's, uh, that's not the best situation at the moment. Um, it's going to be a lot for viewers to take. But we'll see. 
I think it's, again, way, way too early to judge that team. They've only been on the air for a couple weeks, and, uh, and we'll see how they progress. Uh, one thing I've never understood is why Fox and Major League Baseball are so hell-bent on ruining Saturdays for baseball fans. Um, they go to the regional coverage, and if the game in your region is not the one you want to watch, you're, you're, you're struck out, whether you're a member of the extra innings package or anything you can do. Uh, they make sure you can't see them, those games. Why do they do this? And despite people as influential as Bill Simmons screaming and crying about it and people as non-influential as me screaming and crying about it, why, why doesn't something change there? Well, I mean, you know, with all respect to Bill Simmons, television networks aren't going to be reacting to Bill Simmons <laughs> screaming and crying unless, it, unless it's ESPN who might. Uh, I mean, it's money. I mean, it's very simple. Fox pays a lot of money to Major League Baseball for the exclusive rights to a package, and they're not, you know, they want the exclusivity, and they want the eyeballs, um, and so they're not going to, um, they're not going to let every game available in and out of market when they have this exclusive um, window that they do on Saturday. And in terms of the games that they pick, I mean, this is pretty traditional with, you know, all networks. They're going to pick games that they think are going to draw the most ratings nationally, and there are not many national baseball teams, you know. The Red Sox, the Yankees, maybe the Cubs, maybe the Dodgers, maybe the Giants. There's just not many. Um, it's a regional game, like very much like hockey. And if you're, you know, you're living in Kansas City, I mean, you know who the Yankees stars are, but you're not necessarily star of the Yankees. So I can understand why, you know, you're sort of bothered by that. But it's not going to change, and it's not going to change because Fox pays a lot of money for the that um, exclusivity. Um, and so, you know, you're going to have to sort of get used to the big teams um, that are playing on uh, on that network. Uh, but the larger thing is more that baseball just become a very regional game. And they're just not, it's not NFL. It's just not many national teams. And so I think people do get upset, and, right, and I understand why. Um, on a Saturday, when they maybe she's stuck seeing the Yankees and the Red Sox again for the 25th time. But that's, uh, you know, that's, that's how far... That's the, those are the matchups that Fox thinks they can sell and make money on in advertising. So that's, those are the matchups you're going to see. All right. The sportscaster is here with Richard Deitch. Nice enough to give us some of his time while he's in Indianapolis following the Final Four. Again, you can find him on Sports Illustrated, sportsillustrated.com, and at Richard, D-E-I-T-S-C-H on Twitter. Last thing, ESPN just launched a website called Front Row. Uh, what is that all about, and how successful do you think they're going to be with a project like that? Wow, you're, this is very like inside sports media when you're dropping Front Row. <laughs> uh, front Row is uh, ESPN's, the ESPN Public Relations Department's um, uh, internal blog, which basically is set up to um, highlight um, some behind-the-scenes things that ESPN staffers do, be it... Uh, you know, uh, Jeremy Schapp interviewing somebody, maybe asking Schapp what it was like to interview that person, or to do a day in the life of ESPN where you see what, like, uh, you know, an executive producer does or a, um, you know, one of the stats guys there. How does that person uh, go throughout their day? It will also be a place where if things, um, if ESPN wants to clarify something, you'll see their public relations people uh, put out releases there. Um, you know, for example, if uh, one of their employees get into trouble or if uh, people are complaining about a certain show, I think you'll see that blog um, or that site, I should say, uh, have ESPN's take on that. 
I mean, will it be successful? I, I guess it would depend on what you think success is. I think people who are really into sports media will check it out, and I think ESPN and staffers will check it out. And I think the idea of it is a really good one because it, it really gives you the opportunity to push um, you know, positive stories out into the marketplace. So in that sense, it's going to be successful for ESPN. Would I go to that blog to get like uh, um, the most uh, objective uh, opinions about ESPN? No, it would be the last place on earth I'd go to. Uh, but I think for its purposes, I think it'll do well. Um, it's it's really, it's, so far it looks good. The the production of the blog is really good, and it's edited really well. Um, so if you're really into the sports media, I don't think it's necessarily a bad place to uh, check out every now and then. But, you know, it's not going to be a place, if you're into, like, the analysis of a show, or you want someone like myself or, uh, you know, Richard Sandemir or the guys at USA Today, if you kind of want to take on, like, a broadcaster or a show, that's never going to be the place to be because it's, you know, it's, it's obviously done and produced um, by ESPN. So I think the idea in itself is good, and I think, um, I think, some, of the things, uh, I think some of the things there will be good. I'm hoping one day that uh, I can get into a fight with uh, the people running ESPN Front Row Blog because I think it will help push my Twitter followers. <laughs> well, I noticed they asked you what you thought of the, uh, of the site on Twitter, so I thought you might try to spike a... Uh, spark a match there and say, well, you know, it's the worst thing I've ever seen, like you said, maybe to help your Twitter followers, but um, absolute last thing, Jim Nance, we said that he was pretty corny uh, the other night, and he popped out four cliches in about 20 seconds about dogs. Is this an important weekend for him at the Masters to kind of rebound and have a strong weekend? Is he in danger of the country kind of turning on him as a top guy? No. To be blunt, no. Jim Nance is in absolutely zero danger. He's got a long-term contract with CBS. He's really well-liked there, in particular by CBS Sports President uh, Sean McManus. In the golf world, he's particularly beloved. A lot of golf... I mean, he's a, he, he makes no bones about being not objective when it comes to the sport of golf. Um, and no, he's going back to the place where he enjoys the most, which is uh, the Masters. So no, there's... I mean, listen, the thing with sportscasters is you either like someone or you don't like someone, and it, usually you form your opinion, that's not going to change. So the people who... Really, the Nance sort of bashes out there sort of just get enhanced by when he drops cliches, and the people who like Nance, um, you know, probably are like, all right, this may not have been the best uh, ending to a broadcast, and now we move on to the Masters. Um, but no, I, I mean, most of, usually when it comes to broadcasters, interestingly enough, it's so less important about what uh, fans think of them and what their own bosses think of them. And a lot of times their bosses are wrong. I mean, you know, I've been one who harped on the fact that I find it ridiculous that Matt Millen is assigned games in uh, Detroit to yeah. do Michigan or Michigan State. I lived in Ann Arbor. I can tell you the hatred for Matt Millen in that place, but yet ESPN continues to still assign the, uh, uh, you know, continues to assign the guy to Michigan and Michigan State games, which is ridiculous. So usually in this business, um, a lot of it, or more of it has to do with what your idiot bosses think of you, even more than the fans. And as long as you sort of keep your nose clean, um, you can stay on the air for a long time. So that's a long sort of answer to say that, no, I, I don't think anything, I don't think, I think the second Jim Nance left Reliant, he was sort of on to the Masters. I think CBS has long been happy with him. And, uh, and uh, you know, Jim, Jim Nance let the dogs out, and that's, that's about where that story <laughs> begins and ends. <laughs> All right, Richard Deitch, thank you very much for joining the Sportscasters. We really appreciate it. Thanks, thank you. Guys.
At the top of the show, we spent a little bit of time talking about what a disaster the national championship game was in college basketball. If you're a big college sports fan and you got a bitter taste in your mouth, there is a chance to watch the Frozen Four this weekend and uh, kind of snap out of it. There's two games Thursday. The first game is Minnesota Duluth, who was kind of is kind of going to be a home team. They uh, uh, the ga- the games are in St. Paul uh, at the XL Energy Center where the Minnesota Wild play, and uh, Minnesota Duluth obviously uh, not that far away from campus in Minnesota, the state of hockey, and uh, they're kind of led by their senior captain Mike Montgomery. Uh, the Bulldogs have five underclassmen on defense. They are really a uh, strong defensive team. And they are playing Notre Dame, who is the opposite, very young, uh, a really deep freshman class with T.J. Tynan, Andres Lee, Mike Varan. Uh, so it's an interesting contrast of kind of a Minnesota Duluth team who has built up the last four years. They have these five senior defensemen, upper-class defensemen, ready to battle. They get to play these games in their home state. And then there's Notre Dame on the other side, a really young team with a huge freshman class. I think they'll probably play seven freshmen in the game. It's a young team, but they didn't really drop off at all. From I mean, they're a team that stayed competitive. Yeah, and, while... and that's because they have such a great freshman class. I mean, anytime you can get T.J. Tynan, Andres Lee, and Mike Varan in the same class, you know, that's, that's sick. And Andres Lee... If you haven't watched him play, he is huge. He 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 almost reminds me of Yarmer Yager. He's he's physically he's genetically gifted, and then T.J. Tynan's the absolute opposite. Really short, and and then Mike Rand, I guess you could say, is right in the middle. But uh, Notre Dame and Minnesota Duluth is going to be a really interesting game. Uh, a strong contrast between uh, veterans and youth, and uh, you know I really. I really like Minnesota Duluth in this game. Uh, anytime you're in a in a game that's as high pressured as the NCAA Frozen Four semifinal is, it's nice to have veterans, especially at defense. And uh, I think Minnesota Duluth is going to do enough uh, in front of what should be a very partisan crowd uh, t- uh, to to win the game. What do you think, Don? I don't see as much college hockey as you do, with your uh, especially with your interest now because of your brother. Uh, we used to do brackets. We didn't do one this year for whatever reason. My question to you is going to be, do you think college hockey tends to get it right? We were talking about how, I mean, it's another one-and-done tournament. Hockey, you can run into a hot goalie. You can run into a bad goalie. I mean, anything can. Hockey is one of them sports that it seems like it, at a competitive level, anybody can win on any night. So, Well, one nice thing about the NCAA hockey tournament is they start at 16. And... Especially this season, it's not always. There was only one team in the tournament this year that wasn't in the top 16. In other words, there was only one team who used an auto bid to get into the tournament. It's Air that, Force. And that was Air Force. Right. That wouldn't have made it. And Air Force played a very, very competitive game. They won a game last year when they were the auto bid. Yes, that, yeah. and the Atlantic Hockey is always the 16th rated team right. in the tournament. It's always a one-bid ter- uh, conference but they have won games in the past. Holy Cross upset Minnesota in one of the most historic upsets in all college sports a few years back. Air Force has won. RIT went all the way to the Frozen Four last year. Right. So one thing about college hockey in the tournament is they do start at 16. And it's, let's take a team like Miami, two of the best players in the country, Carter Camper 
and and Amelia, and, and they get a bad draw. They have to start off in New Hampshire, play a road game. Before you know it, they're it's gone. All done, right? So, uh, is it the best way? I don't know, but it's certainly a very, very exciting way to do it. Basically, what you're saying is there's 16 teams that could probably, arguably, deserve to be where they are, minus maybe one a year. Absolutely, there isn't the there isn't you know four or five or six teams in there that wouldn't normally make the tournament. Like a VCU that gets hot and goes on a run. Right. Right. You know, if a team's going to get hot and make a run, a good example of it is Minnesota Duluth. Well, Minnesota Duluth was one of the top 10 teams in the country all year anyways. Right. So it's not like it's some outrageous travesty that they would. Uh, but how would you fill out a 64-team bracket if, if there's only 16 teams? I, I, my, my point there is just that I, I think that's – people will argue about the college thing, but it's more about gambling, I think. That's, that's what brings out the – people to the NCAA basketball tournament. The other game is kind of a matchup of more classic college hockey powers. It is Notre, or excuse me, North, North Dakota, Dakota facing off against Michigan. And when you talk about college hockey, you don't talk long without talking about Michigan. North Dakota Sioux and yeah. the Michigan Wolverines. It's always cool to watch Michigan college hockey because they got those cool Wolverine helmets. <laughs> yeah. you know, And of course... North Dakota is led by Matt Fratton and his 36 goals and 60 points. He's in the, the Hattrick, uh, Hobie Baker Hattrick final three. And, uh, you know, I think North Dakota is a really hot team. They beat, let me think, they lost to Denver in the WCHA final five, but they avenged that loss last week in the final of their region to reach the Final Four, and they looked really, really good doing it. Michigan, I think, got really pushed to the brink by Nebraska-Omaha, was lucky to win that game, uh, got some help from instant replay, and I really yeah. like North Dakota, and I really like North Dakota this weekend. We got uh, any – sorry. No. Oh, uh, we got any big uh, NHL prospects playing well, this I weekend think, to look yes, out for? Yeah. Definitely Matt Fratton. Um, he could have very easily – uh, went to the Toronto Maple Leafs. He was actually kicked off the team last year uh, as a junior for making a couple of mistakes, and the Leafs offered uh, a chance for him to start his pro career, but he wanted to go back to college, and he he went back and scored 36 goals and 60 points. He might win the Hobie Baker. So is he going to go back into the draft then? No, he, he's Leafs. He is pro- okay, he's probably Leafs, um, and he'll definitely be with them next week. I think uh, Anders Lee and TJ Tynan are both NHL quality players for Notre Dame. I think you'll find them in, in the NHL. Uh, there's a couple of seniors at North Dakota to keep an eye on, Brad Malone and Evan Troop. Uh, they both um, will certainly get some looks if they're not already drafted. And Michigan's Louis Caparuso um, is looking for uh, to help Michigan get the first national championships in 1998, which is kind of surprising. That Michigan hockey hasn't won uh, since 1990. Yeah, if you ask a casual fan, who, yeah, that's probably surprising too. You know, and it's it's finally they're gonna for the first time in three years national championships not gonna be in Boston. Uh, <laughs> BC's won two and BU, BU won one. Yeah. So in the last three, so I'm looking forward to it this weekend. I wanted to give it a little bit of time. The games are on Thursday and Saturday. All three of them are on ESPN two. And one really cool thing about the NCAA Frozen Four is that you get to hear Gary Thorne call hockey, and that's yeah. always a treat. 
Uh, he's great at it, and him and Barry Melrose will be anchoring ESPN's coverage. ESPN's got to get it back. I can't stand listening to Pierre Maguire and uh, Milbury anymore. Yeah, they're brutal. But uh, definitely enjoy. Oh, one last thing, college hockey-related, we should mention. We raved about Jaden Schwartz last week, uh, and he had a terrific tournament, kind of single-handedly eliminated Boston College. His younger sister was a hockey player at uh, Yale. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and, and she unfortunately had leukemia and passed away. So we definitely want to send uh, well wishes to the Schwartz family. And uh, hopefully they're at peace and Mandy's at peace. And I'm sure we're going to be talking about Jaden for a long, long time. So we'll be right back with Jeff Duncan. Our next guest is an author of next month's book club of the month book from bags to riches how the new orleans saints and the people of their hometown rose from the depths together he is a beat writer for the new orleans or for the new orleans times picayune and he is our next guest jeff duncan how you doing today jeff doing great steve how you doing uh we're doing really good here in Buffalo, New York, we've been spending the last month or so reading all of the different Best American Sports Series books, and one of the very first ones that I was drawn to was the 2006 book, and the reason I was initially drawn to it is because it was edited by Michael Lewis, and anytime you're doing a project where you're going to explore nonfiction writing, I think Michael Lewis is a good place to start because he could very well be the Michael Jordan of nonfiction writing. And as I started to read that particular version of the book, one of the very first articles in there was a name that as a, a Saints fan for the last 20-some years I recognized, and that was yours and your piece about uh, the football team that kind of got displaced, and it's called Desire Without End. And why don't we start there, and why don't you talk a little bit about Desire Without End and uh, the football team that you wrote about? Well, uh, it goes back, actually, to before Katrina, my association with Desire Street. Um, of course, everybody's familiar with Danny Warfel, former Heisman Trophy winning quarterback at the University of Florida, and uh, played a little bit in the NFL, uh, was drafted by Mike Ditka with the New Orleans Saints, but never really uh, mustered much of a career. But I got to know Danny a little bit with his association at Desire Street, and um knew what they were trying to build there at the school. And for, for your listeners to understand, Desire Street Academy was a brand-new school. It started right before Hurricane Katrina down in a, a part of New Orleans uh, called the Ninth Ward. It, it's, it's really the upper Ninth Ward right above the Industrial Canal. Uh, and everybody familiar with Hurricane Katrina knows about the lower Ninth Ward. That's just the other side of the Industrial Canal, which really had some catastrophic flooding after the storm. But uh, the Upper Nine, where Desire Street Academy was uh, basically launched, was right near the Desire Street projects and uh, in an area that is probably one of the most impoverished areas in the city. And it's an area where uh, Marshall Falk grew up 
and a lot of lost souls in that area. And and Danny Warfel really became attached to the uh, to the mission back then uh, when he played for the New Orleans Saints and became involved with the academy. And this academy really wasn't even a school at first. It started uh, basically as a um, just a Bible study. Uh, and uh, eventually grew to the point it became so popular that they decided to start their own school there. And uh, they had just gotten their building built and really had enough enrollment to start a school right before Katrina hit, and were getting ready to start their first school season uh, when the storm uh, hit, and basically they had a large breach in the canal wall there, flooded their entire school building. Of course, most of their students were... Uh, displaced because of the storm, and they were located all over the country. And I actually was covering Hurricane Katrina for our newspaper in the days after the storm. I remember being distinctly remember being down in the French Quarter at a barbecue joint, one of the few places open, getting some uh, food with some colleagues, and saw up on CNN uh, Danny Wolfel being interviewed, and immediately registered with me what I wonder what happens to desire street because I knew they were getting ready to start their first initial sp- uh, sports season and the timing could not have been worse of course and Danny was on there as he does so well raising awareness to the cause uh, obviously using his celebrity uh, to bring awareness to his, his mission down there at the school and so I hooked up with Danny and uh, the story after that kind of unfolded that they were not going to give up on the season, they felt like it was too important uh, that too many of their students uh, could be lost for good if they did not keep them together. And so, what unfolded from there was uh, just a remarkable story of how uh, the educators and organizers at Desire Street went around the country to shelters, tracking down all of their students and really basically put them together in a makeshift school over on the Florida Gulf Coast. Basically, a 4-H camp, a bunch of log cabins uh, in Niceville, Florida, close to where Danny Werfel grew up in Fort Walton Beach, Florida, and basically put together a, a, a school uh, from scratch on the fly uh, with a bunch of inner-city kids over in, in a 4-H camp in Florida, and they managed to play a, a football season that year by traveling back and forth from the Gulf Coast of Florida to New Orleans to play games. And I thought it was just a, a remarkable story of perseverance and dedication and commitment. And uh, we, we saw about basically through the prism of sports and what sports can do uh, in, in times of crisis. And, uh, you know, the football team wasn't very good, as you can imagine, but it really didn't matter. It was just really about the uh, bringing players and kids together, giving them a common goal uh, when there really wasn't a lot of alternatives for them in their lives at that time. What do you know about the process that um, helped your piece go from the pages of the Times Picayune to the pages of the Best American Sports Writing? Well, it was uh, you know it was a, a little it was a difficult time for me because I was doing that basically on the side in addition to my daily coverage at the newspaper at the time that Katrina hit. I was I was the beat writer for the Saints in the sports department, uh, but initially rode out the storm at the Times Picayune building and uh, immediately launched into covering the storm and its immediate aftermath and was really off the Saints beat for about, I'd say, about eight months. Hmm. And during that time, I was covering the initial aftermath, search and rescue missions, things like that. So in addition to covering 
my regular news duties, I, I came across this story and worked on that on the side, and Danny was gracious enough to give me a lot of access. And fortunately, they were playing games over here in the New Orleans area, so it was easy for me to get away at night and go to the games. And I went to every game they played that year. They played an abbreviated schedule of about four or five games. Um, so it, the really difficult part for me was trying to get it done uh, in a timely manner uh, during the season um, in, in time to meet my editor's demands in addition to my news coverage, which was still, uh, you know, pretty uh, pretty challenging at the time because we were still doing a lot of crazy, you know, coverage of the aftermath and travel around to other countries doing stories on uh, the, the cities that had had major, major disasters like Katrina and how they recovered. Uh, so I wanted to make sure this story was told the right way, and fortunately they gave me the time to do it. Uh, and it really would have never happened if it wasn't for the organizers and the people at Desire Street allowing me the opportunity to spend some time with the football team and get really good access uh, in the locker room and things like that. Where does Desire Street stand today? Well, today they've got a building uh, up in Baton Rouge. They actually have relocated uh, per- pretty much permanently now to the Baton Rouge area, and uh, they still get students from the New Orleans area up there. They're rebuilding their building. They pretty much rebuilt the, the old building uh, that, that was flooded by about eight feet of water after Katrina. And uh, Danny runs the academy from a, a home base, their headquarters now over on the Gulf Coast of Florida. And um, they continue on with their mission. They've actually become very good at football. Uh, they have uh, D'Angelo Peterson, who's one of the players that I chronicle in that story, uh, was a young star at the at Desire Street, but very raw, talented prospect. He ended up going to LSU and now has been moved to tight end, and I think he's going to be one of the top tight ends in the SEC in coming years. They put out a lot of players now that are getting that are getting recruited at the highest level, uh, really from scratch down there. And I just think it's a, a tremendous story for the perseverance of the people at the time because uh, there was a lot of opportunity for them to fold up tents after the bad luck that they had and the timing that they had. It could not have been worse. And uh, they stayed with it. And I think uh, one day they're going to have their first NFL draft pick uh, very soon coming out of Desire Street Academy. That will be a tremendous accomplishment. As the time goes by and Desire Street uh, keeps building, as you said, do you think there's a longer book uh, somewhere in this story? And is that something you'd be interested in pursuing? Uh, no question about it. You know, I haven't talked to Danny about it, uh, but that is something that I think could be made into a book. Um, you know, there's been a lot of stuff come out of Katrina, out of New Orleans, uh, a lot of terrific stories and a lot of, uh, I think, stories that people can identify, whether they're sports fans or not. And I think that'll be one. All the hardships that they had overcome, and really they, they do a tremendous job at Desire Street of of raising um, money and f- fundraising at that school. It's really a national fundraising program that Danny spearheads using his NFL ties and his celebrity to, to raise funds for this program. And, uh, you know, that's, I, I think one day he would like to branch that out and try and see different types of schools like that across the South or in inner cities like New Orleans where there's a need for it. And so I could see him, uh, you know, really looking to expand this mission down the road. I know that's something he wants to do. Be interesting to see if it ever, you know, comes to fruition. But I know right now, that's something that's on the um, the scope. And I could see where a book maybe in in that in that um, 
with that concept in mind would help his maybe his mission even more, raise a little more awareness for it, for what they've done, because it really it all started right down there in the Ninth Ward uh, with, a, with a new, I think their building was a new $4 million building. It's only been open a few months uh, when Katrina hit, and I remember going in the gym with Danny after the storm, and there was actually a, a telephone pole, a full-length telephone pole that somehow ended up on the gym floor. That just shows you the power of the water at the time. It had, I guess, gotten smashed in through the through the glass windows on the side somehow at a perfect angle and got in inside that gym. But I can remember seeing his face, all they had built at that time, everything they'd done to get ready to open the school year. If you remember, Katrina hit August 29th, right at the start yeah. of the school year. And that just seemed like they had lost it all in, in one blink of an eye there. So to see it kind of where it's at now, what's happened, I think would be a, a story for a lot of people to read and be inspired by. You know, it's interesting as you're talking, I'm just thinking about how shows like uh, Real Sports love to do pieces on old, decrepit NFL players who have no money and no health insurance and things like that. But it would be a great story, just the Danny Whirlful, former NFL player, former you know Heisman Trophy uh, candidate uh, who has become this wonderful fundraiser and runs this incredible school and it's going to be turning out NFL players. It's really unbelievable if you think about it. Yeah, and you know, Danny and his wife uh, at the time, they lost their house in Katrina. Their house was in Lakeview section of New Orleans, which was flooded by the 17th Street Canal breach and uh, they were, um, you know, had a newborn at the time and so they had a personal crisis in addition to what was going on in professional life. So, and, and they were like a lot of New Orleanians at the time having to deal with stuff at work and then go home at night and deal with their own personal lives being overturned. Um, and they endured, and I think a lot of it had to do with Danny's faith, he'll tell you that. Uh, but it really is a tremendous story, and one that I'm not sure has really resonated nationally like it should. What do you think of uh, Treme on HBO uh, and how they're doing, telling the story that you covered so closely? I think they're doing a tremendous job. I could not, I could, it could not be more authentic. And I know that was something that creator David Simon wanted to do. Anybody that's from New Orleans or lived in New Orleans knows all the uh, badly done uh, films and, and TV shows over the years trying to capture the essence of this culture down here that's so unique. And David Simon, uh, I think, has uh, really done a tremendous job of uh, telling the real story post-Katrina New Orleans, what it's like here. It's really difficult, and, and I, I admire his um, accepting this challenge because New Orleans is such a unique culture. It's so difficult to really tell. Uh, I had trouble in my book From Bags to Riches explaining the different nuances and layers to the society here. It's so different than the rest of America. And uh, to do it visually, I think, can even be more difficult. And really what you have to do to explain people New Orleans and the essence of this city is you have to really show it to them. Uh, when people come down, I try to take them and ex- get them to experience some of the different scenes here because really it's a city of scenes. Uh, and if you can get people to see visually and experience what it's like, then they have a better idea of why it's so different because if you try and explain to people, I figured I found that words... Uh, often don't do it justice, and I think they've done a tremendous job of of getting all the different parts of the city and what makes it so unique into one show. Now there's there's been weaknesses to it. I think there there needs to be a little bit better narrative thread to it to tie it all together. Uh, but as far as 
an ode to the real New Orleans post-Katrina and what it was like living here. I think they've done a, a tremendous job, and I expect season two, which starts April 24th, I think it's going to be even better from what I understand. Looking forward to it. You know, it's interesting. I've been to New Orleans two times since Katrina, both for long weekends for Saints games. And uh, honestly, I I haven't seen Katrina yet. I've been there twice, and it seems like the city has done a good job almost shielding tourists from Katrina. It's It's like I know that even though I've been there twice since, I haven't experienced it. I haven't been in the right places or the right situations you know i i've just uh you know seemingly i get off the plane and i'm swept to the french quarter and i'm around the superdome and you know it's just i haven't seen it well you're, you're not alone i mean the areas that most visitors to the city most tourists come to the city and, and visit new orleans they end up in the areas that were largely unaffected by the storm and, and that that's for a reason the reason that the city was built where it was, and the reason it was first inhabited, the older historic areas of the city, like the French Quarter, the Uptown Garden District areas, they were built there and first uh, settled there because of it was high ground back then. You know, you got to remember back when this city was started 200-something, 300 years ago, there was not uh, the flood protection plans, there weren't canal systems, there weren't dams, locks, and things like that to control the Mississippi River, so they had to find high ground and those areas were the areas that didn't flood when Lake Pontchartrain basically emptied out into the city of New Orleans. So the areas that people come to to see the, the Tulane uptown, beautiful campus near near Ottoman Park, and of course all the beautiful antebellum homes along St. Charles Avenue, and, and the you know, famous French Quarter. Those areas uh, have not been were not flooded and remain largely like they were before the storm. It's you have to get off the beaten track get into these neighborhoods like Gentilly and Lakeview, the Lower Ninth Ward, uh, that really were de- devastated by the flood. And, and we've got to remember, 80% of the city flooded. So only that 20% is the, about the 20% that most people visit to begin with, and they don't really get to see the damage. And, and, and I've taken people on disaster tour after disaster tour. I just did one this past weekend with some friends that ran from San Francisco, and showed them the areas of the Lower Ninth Ward where there's still block after block of either just slab homes with nothing left there or overgrown lots uh, where uh, no one's come back to rebuild, and I don't think anybody's going to come back for a long time. Uh, so there's still a lot of work to be done, yet five years after the storm, uh, it's just, it just in areas of the city that aren't necessarily uh, going to be drawing a tourist eye because they're just neighborhoods where people live day to day like you and me. Were you disappointed with MTV and the real world and how little they did to kind of expose the country and a younger audience to what the city is really like? They, I know they rebuilt the house maybe one time or something like that, but they really mm-hmm. didn't. They really didn't show the city. They kind of showed the New Orleans that I have seen in my two trips down there. And it it yeah, seems like a lost opportunity. Yeah, they missed an opportunity there, Steve, I think. And, 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 you know, especially because so many people in that demographic, that show's demographic, have come to New Orleans to help rebuild. And I thought they had a really great opportunity uh, to do that, to raise some of the awareness of the, the, the need that's still there. Uh, this city owes a great debt of, of gratitude to all of these young uh Students, high school, college students that came down here after the storm, they're still coming down on missionary mission work, 
just on strictly on the uh, challenge or uh, the opportunity to help, and, and it goes on to this day. And it's young people that came in for no other reason than just to, to do what they could. They figured they could come down here and rebuild a home, uh, gut a house, uh, clean up a neighborhood, and that's been going on for years. And, and we've written story after story in the Times Picayune about it. And I thought there was a great there's a great opportunity there. Uh, to tap into that for the real world instead of just showing people going out partying and taking advantage of the nightlife, which we all know about in New Orleans. Uh, there was a lot of young people, and that's transferred over to uh, enrollment, uh, spikes in enrollment at Tulane University, also at Loyola University, which has seen uh, enrollment improvement the last couple of years, and also in, in, in uh, it's manifested itself in, in the demographics of the city, there, I think we just saw a recent poll where New Orleans has had the greatest gain in college graduates in the 20s or like mid-30s of any other city in the country. And it's a lot of young Teach for America students uh, coming in here, teaching at some of the schools because there's a great need for that post-Katrina and then finding that they love the city and falling in love with it and staying here. So there's a lot of young uh, college-educated students in this market post-Katrina that simply weren't here before the storm, and it's, I think, going to be an incredible place to be in the next decade because uh, I think the new New Orleans uh, is going to be better than ever. There's so many things that have come, so many silver linings to the storm, and the education system, which was completely broke before the storm, has basically been started from scratch, and it really needed that. I think Katrina was the only thing that could have saved it, and... Um, that's one of the more exciting stories post-Katrina, along with the sports. You know, that's another success story post-Katrina that nobody thought about, but uh, the Saints are clearly better on and off the field than they were before the storm. There are not too many things like that in the city, and pro sports and I think the education system were two of the real success stories. Last week we announced on the show that, you know, as we put the best American sports writing behind us, our new book was going to be From Bags to Riches. And I don't want to talk about it too much today, We'll save that for when you, when you come on in May. But, you know, I do want to talk a little bit about the Saints. And I, I think maybe we'll save 2010 for next time. And today we'll just talk about what's going on right now. Uh, the Times-Picayune, I think, has always been a really progressive paper. Uh, being here in Buffalo and following the Saints as closely as I do, I've always uh, been able to go to nola.com slash saints and and find uh, the great writing that you do and some of your colleagues, and uh, of course now an iPhone app and all these different ways to access the material. And you guys are doing some really cool things this off-season, uh, however long it may be. We're not sure yet, but right now you're working on a really cool piece about the 10 uh, best draft picks and the 10 worst draft picks. And why don't you tell me what it's like to be a football beat writer right now in this kind of uncertain time of NFL history? Well, there's a, you know, there's a blessing and a curse to that. The, the, the blessing is uh, you know, your days aren't quite as busy because every beat writer in the country knows uh, that the offseason is kind of the wild, wild west. You, do, you just don't know where the bullets are coming from story-wise. You don't know when a player is going to be released or signed. Uh, it really is Arrested. Uh, the busiest. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Arrested. It's the biggest headache time. Uh, and every NFL beat writer will tell you that. So in some ways, uh, it, it's not as bad because it's not as busy for us, and, and it's a much-needed respite from the, the season, which is a long grind. 
so selfishly, I would say, you know, I wouldn't mind if this thing uh, held out until I could start a training camp and we could start up the season then because the NFL beat has become such a monster. Even in the 10, 12 years mm-hmm. I've covered it, uh, you know, the off season used to be able to be a time where you could catch up on, uh, you know, your your vacation time. You could uh, catch up on your comp time from the season. Because you you basically work seven days a week, ten hour days during the season, and you get a little time off. But there's none of that anymore. The NFL is so heavily covered. It's obviously the most popular uh, sports industry in the world, and it, literally every player on the roster is of, of interest to fans. Uh, even the backup guard, the, the fifth number five wide receiver in, in New Orleans is Adrian Arrington. And I can't tell you how many things I've written about Adrian Arrington, you know, a guy that <laughs> never sees the field, but there's an interest level in it. And so that correspondingly happens in the offseason, especially after a team wins a Super Bowl, where if a player in New Orleans just is out doing an autograph signing at the local mall, we have to go out and basically find him and talk to him and see what's on his mind. It becomes a story. And I, I actually compare it to like... Uh, red carpet journalism like we see out in Hollywood where somebody's walking along the red carpet going into an event and you just stop and chat with them for a few minutes and get their input. That's kind of what we do now with the Saints in New Orleans. Anytime the player or coaches in the area and they're at a public appearance, we're there. And so that becomes quite busy, as you can imagine. Uh, But in in turn, this downtime right now gives us an opportunity to do some things that we weren't able to do if we're so busy doing those other things. And like some things like this analysis of the drafts, uh, I find we're doing more analyses in our coverage because we don't have the access to some of the players perhaps or some of the normal practice or OTA events that we normally would go to. Uh, we're, we're coming up with more creative things to, uh, I think, satisfy the needs of our readers. Um, and this is a fun thing that I can do because I've, I've covered the team so long, written so many books of and things about this team, I feel like uh, you know I've got the authority to be able to put something like that together, and it creates some debate and, and creates uh, some interest in, in the draft as we you know as we it approaches three or four weeks away now. Well, you've already sparked some debate in my mind because are you really not going to include Jonathan Sullivan as one of the ten biggest busts in Saints draft history? Well, I think he'll be in there. Uh, I don't think there's any doubt he's going to be in there. Oh, but okay. where he goes, <laughs> where he goes. Pretty close uh, to the top. For debate. I don't think anyone ever will argue with the number one pick. I don't think it's it's arguable at all. And I can tell you, he's not the worst pick. There tends to be a little bit of a of, an, of a recency issue with Saints fans. I've noticed they they tend to think that that uh, you know Jari Evans or Marcus Colston was one of the best picks ever, and uh, Jonathan Summers was the worst just because they're they're happened recently and they know more about it. They forget about some of these old draft picks that were just horrendous at the time that really derailed the franchise for the first few decades when they were struggling so mightily uh, back in the day. So something like not drafting Lawrence Taylor is going to find its way onto the list in some shape or form? Yeah, you know, it could. It could. I mean, you know, the thing with that is is they drafted a pretty, pretty good, good player. player. Yeah, I know. Yeah, you know. Yeah. And, and, and arguably, you know, Lawrence Taylor... While he was a tremendous player, would he have been that same player in the Saints system playing, you know, with coaches that like he had? Maybe he'd end up being more like George Rogers, who was a pretty good player that got stuck in a bad franchise. You know, so many players get stuck in dysfunctional situations and aren't allowed the opportunity to shine. I think you could make a pretty good argument that if Marcus Colston 
were somewhere else, he would not be putting up the numbers and enjoying the same success uh, that he's enjoying here in New Orleans. So was it really a, a horrible pick for somebody to, to pass him up? Uh, yeah, probably so, but I don't think he, he would be a almost a Pro Bowl caliber player somewhere else. And a lot of scouts in the league will tell you that same thing. Uh, but nevertheless, he's hit, hitting the right spot at the right time with this quarterback in his prime and this system uh, to be considered up. Uh, he's definitely going to be on that list of the top 10 picks. How is the Reggie Bush contract situation going to sort out? I was shocked that we paid him $8 million last year. Be even more shocked if he makes $11 million this next year. But he, he seems to want to stay and they seem to want to keep him. Are, are they willing to pay him $11 million or is that something that's going to have to be restructured if he does stay? No, he's not going to see $11.8 million. No, no way in hell. He, he, he will... Uh, I think it was ridiculous that they paid him eight million last yep. year, but I think I think he got caught up a little bit in the uh, Sean Payton uh, post Katrina love affair at the time. It seemed like I remember distinctly watching the NFL Films video, the outtakes of that uh, Mike episode where Sean Payton was hugging Reggie, Reggie Bush on the field at the Super Bowl and telling him he wasn't going anywhere. He was staying right where he was. <laughs> uh, this was in the moments right after they'd won the Super Bowl. I just think there was a lot of emotional emotion in that decision uh, that is not going to be in this decision now that they've had a year like they've had and he's been injured again. Uh, so I, I think what will happen is, 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 and it's already been reported pretty, pretty well laid out, that he's going to get another contract that's going to be reworked and uh, probably spread out in the, in the form of an extension They'll probably see four million, roughly four million dollars a year or so, uh, but th- and that's probably in line with what his value is. And it's really not Reggie Bush's fault uh, that he's getting eleven point eight million. It's it's a uh, byproduct of this right of the uh, system, really. You know, rookie, yeah, yeah, the rookie, the rookie, value of a um, second overall pick. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Sure. So you know he's not the only one like that. There's a lot of guys in it like that. Demarcus Russell being a prime example as well, and that's something that's trying to get addressed right now in these uh, labor talks. Yeah, I, I think to you, um, you know, giving Reggie Bush $8 million is kind of a product of not really even having an offseason. I think that it was just kind of a, you know, a big, long party, and uh, then we kind of showed up on opening day, and I don't think anyone blinked until Garrett Hartley missed that field goal against Atlanta, and then it was like, all right, well, it's time for football season now. And, um, you know, well, it, and don't forget also that there was an uncapped year. That was another huge factor in that. I mean, they didn't really have to worry about it. They could afford to pay him $8 million. They went ahead and did it and kept him happy. And, you know, Reggie Bush has got a very healthy ego and, uh, it, you know, still in some ways believes he's the same superstar he was when he was at Southern Cal. He, I think he really truly believes that he's that same guy that's, you know, just in his sacrifice in New Orleans and only for that reason is he not an annual Pro Bowl player and uh, MVP candidate. There's a big part of him that believes that. And I think the Saints know that and probably didn't want to damage his ego too much at the time when they could afford to pay it coming off the Super Bowl. Every single day I think about the fact that Drew Brees plays for the Saints and I have to pinch myself. We're never going to, I mean, it's silly to say never, but it, it feels like we have to enjoy every day with Drew Brees as a part of this franchise because people like Drew Brees. I, I'm here in Buffalo, and, you know, Jim Kelly is, is kind of a good comparison. And the, Jim Kelly hasn't played since 1995, and the Bills still haven't come close to finding a quarterback. 
uh, that that uh, lived up to what Jim Kelly produced. So I just feel like we're so lucky to be in the Drew Brees era, and part of me just wants it to to last forever because I'm scared of what comes after it. Yeah, and you know that's where you have to give Sean Payton a world of credit. Back in '06, when he identified immediately, they had to address the quarterback situation, and he and Mickey Loomis basically gambled the franchise on a quarterback coming off a major severe shoulder injury. But they identified the guy they wanted to get and laid out a lot of money to outbid Miami to get him. And, and the franchise changed forever because of that. And if you go back and, and look at the 2006 coverage, which I've done a lot in my book research, it's amazing how the coverage was framed back then. If you go back and read it, really breathe, even though he'd played in the Pro Bowl before, was not seen as the, the big get back then. It was clearly Reggie Bush. Right. Bush was written off, written basically as uh, the savior of New Orleans. He was going to save the franchise. He was the marketing uh, face of the of the franchise. He was the guy that they were putting on the covers of the of, of the media guides and uh, getting the, the prime feature stories in the national media. And uh, Breeze was kind of a, a B option compared to Reggie Bush. And I think it's interesting to see how it's all played out and how that's changed over the five years as we've seen what's really happened in this franchise. And it's crazy that that pick didn't really work out the way we thought it would, but we've still been able to win a Super Bowl and go to the playoffs and be able to defend the title. And I'm not saying Reggie Bush by any means is a bust, but he's obviously not exactly what we thought he would be when we drafted him in 2006. But uh, we are talking to Jeff Duncan, the New Orleans Saints beat reporter for the New Orleans Times Picayune and the author of the current Sportscasters Book of the Month from Bags to Riches, How the New Orleans Saints and the People of Their Hometown Rose from the Depths Together. Jeff, thank you very much for being with us today. And we look forward to talking to you at the end of the month after we've had a chance to read this book. And I tell you right now that I cannot wait to talk to you about the season from heaven. (laughs) <laughs> and uh <laughs> yeah it's gonna be fun i think you're gonna enjoy reliving it and, yeah uh, that, that's what the book does you just relive that ride because it was an incredible ride for saint fans and new orleanians in general yes it was incredible i, I you know I, I wrote something the other day i, I rewatched the uh, redskins game and i just think wow robert meacham just ripped the ball out of that guy's hands really and scored and then that review went in our favor and then Chris McAllister knocked the ball out, and that review went in our favor. And it's like, this—it's just all surreal, even if you just look back now. But we'll talk more about that in a month, in a month or so. So thank you very much for joining us today, and uh, we'll talk to you soon. Look forward to it, Stephen. Thank you very much for the time. Thank you. Thank you very much. And you're listening to my boyfriend Steve on the Sportscasters. And, oh yeah, Don's on it too. One last segment here on episode number 14 of the Sportscasters. It is our weekly embarrassment (laughs) pick four. Started off so strong too. Last week I went two and two winning the Yankees opening day game six to three over the Tigers. Also correctly predicted that UConn would win the game of the week over Kentucky. They won 56-55 to after Kentucky shot a full-court three-pointer at the buzzer. That wasn't worth four points. 
<laughs> I lost my bold prediction of 17 strikeouts on opening day between Lincecum and Kershaw, but they had 14. Ah, so close. Uh, but not close at all. Was <laughs> I picked the Redskins to beat the Blues, or the Red Wings to beat the Blues. The Redskins might as well have played. Yeah, it was 10-3 to 3 Blues. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so, uh, whoops. Uh, Don was also 2-2. Two and two. He won the Hawks, a nice pick over the Celtics, 88-83. Correct, correctly picked the game of the week, UConn over Kentucky, but lost VCU winning the national championship. So they were upended in the national semifinal by Butler, 70-62. to 62. And he lost the Blackhawks, yeah. beating the Lightning. Lightning won that one two to nothing. It's unbelievable. Up to date, I am twenty eight and twenty five. Don is twenty seven and twenty six. The game of the week this week is the New York Yankees, with CC Sabathia on the mound playing the Boston Red Sox with Josh Beckett Sunday at eight o'clock on ESPN. Don, I am going to take Boston at home. Uh, lousy start, but they're better than that. They've got to turn it around. What better place than against their rivals, the Yankees? I am going to pick the Yankees. Uh, I like the start that the Yankees have. I love their bullpen, and I like the pitching, pitching matchup, uh, Sabathia over Beckett. My host choice for this week is a homer pick. I'm going to say in their last home game uh, of the season and in their like alumni return game, I'm not sure what they're calling it exactly, but they have, they've invited every alumni ever, basically, to come back. Uh, all expenses paid, and apparently north of 75 players have taken them up on it. I'm going to take the Sabres to lock up whatever playoff spot they're going to have at that point to win over the Flyers. My host choice, I'm going to stick with the Yankees. They play the Orioles this week. The Orioles are off to a hot start, but I'm going to pick the Yankees over the Orioles Wednesday, 7.05. It's on the Yes Network. My worldwide leader pick, because... Hockey's been so bad to me, I'm going to keep going at it. Uh, versus Friday night, Detroit plays the first of two games to end their season against the Blackhawks. And I'm going to take Detroit at home over Chicago. Okay, my worldwide leader pick is a baseball game. I think I'm going to like picking these baseball games. And uh, next week is going to be our Philadelphia Phillies podcast. So I'm going to pick the Phillies over the Nationals. Wednesday, 7.05 on ESPN2. My bold prediction kind of piggybacks on my worldwide leader game. I'm going to say with a one-point lead on eighth place and four games to go still, which is more than the team that they are one point ahead of, Calgary only has one point. I'm going to say Chicago misses the playoffs. I think Dallas or Calgary catches them. It just seems like they can't get it going this year. Maybe the run last year is too much. Uh, it happens a lot in hockey. I think Carolina missed after the year they won the cup. They did. I just I think they're out of gas. I mean, uh, Philly looks like they're out of gas a little bit too. So I'm going to say Chicago misses the playoffs. My bold prediction is something I sort of mentioned on the Masters edition of the podcast this week. Tiger Woods is going to miss the cut this weekend at the Masters. It would oh. be the first time he ever missed the cut. But I hate Tiger Woods. I love rooting against him. <laughs> and it would be absolutely fabulous to see him miss the cut. Going, going back to my bold prediction real quick, because I just noticed the stat. Chicago's goal mm. differential is plus 32 for an eighth-place team. There's teams with negative. Because they score money. in bunches. Yeah, they must just yeah. crush teams and then yep. lose close ones. But, yeah, 
That's interesting. Tiger Woods is going to miss his first cut ever, you're saying. Yeah, well, his first, first cut, cut at the, the Masters, Masters yeah. Ever, right? uh, a couple notes this week. Uh, this was episode 14, featured Jeff Duncan and Richard Deitch. Hopefully you enjoyed it. Uh, if you're looking for some other content, the New York Yankees baseball bonus uh, podcast number one is still available on our website. We had Alex Belf, who talked about his time on the Big Lebowski and uh, also the baseball documentary. And he was very nice enough to post on his blog. Hopefully some of you came over from there and are still listening. Yeah, thanks. Also, we have a new baseball bonus number two up this week uh, featuring the Boston Red Sox. We have a really cool interview with Glenn Stout, kind of tying into our book club, and he talks a little bit about Fenway Stadium, a book he has coming out about that and about the current Red Sox team. And we go really in deep with the uh, current Red Sox team and talk to Tony Lee, uh, the beat reporter from Nesson, a really cool guy. Was he as excited as the uh He was good. He was really Yankee good. Yeah, he was really good. <laughs> so look forward to that. Uh, he's much, much more exciting than, what was it, Travis Goodman? The Goldman? Pinstripe. Pinstripealley.com. Pinstripe yeah. yeah, the guy knows his stuff. Just And also fan favorite Zach Rosenfield and former co-host Anthony Day and I <laughs> did a really quick Masters podcast that we – have posted and if you're interested in the masters you can check that out uh find us on the web we are www.sports-casters.com uh find us on the blogosphere where i will kind of organize all this information for you let you know what to find where the sportscasters.blogspot.com find us on facebook the sportscasters or facebook.com slash the sportscasters and make sure you email us we are going to have some books to give away we were lucky enough to give a book away last week to joe uh from the damashek message board who won the greatest sports american american writing of the century book congratulations to joe donnie cue the hip see you next week all right